You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. We get the pleasure of diving into 1 Corinthians 15 today. Um, so just be in your Bibles. We're going to be in and out of this text, and uh, we're going to be diving deep into what the resurrection means for us as God's people. But before we dive in, I just want you to think back on the last time you tried to explain the gospel to somebody who had not believed in the gospel. Maybe it was on a plane uh, with the person next to you. If you do that, kudos to you. I, I'm always afraid because like now they're not going anywhere. Um, so there's like three hours of silence after that moment. Need to be more bold in the Lord, I know. But, but if that's you, you're sharing the gospel on the plane, kudos. Uh, maybe you were standing in the backyard around the grill with the neighbor. Or maybe you were trying to explain your faith and why you believe what you do to a skeptical un- uncle. When we speak about the gospel, it's almost no sweat to talk about a God who exists and who made all things. Even the most staunch agnostic could give a little bit of room for that and say, well, the world had to get here somehow. Most agnostics would agree that maybe there is a God. It's quite a possibility. It's also not all that difficult to convince someone of the concept of sin. Most people, if they're honest, would agree that this world is not as it should be because people are not as they should be. And even the vast majority of people would agree that there was an important Nazarene named Jesus and that he taught good things. However, when you get to why Jesus is our hope, why we put all of our faith in Jesus, that's when Christianity gets prickly and awkward. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was not just a man, but that he was the creator who became a human and while still being fully divine, lived a perfect human life, died a terrible death on a Roman cross, laid dead in a stone cold tomb for three days, and then came back out again alive, a living, breathing, resurrected savior. Not only that, this same resurrected God-man has promised that all of us who trust in him will live again after we die. That we're going to be resurrected in real physical bodies, not metaphorically, but a real resurrection with real flesh and blood, and that we will get to walk the earth with our resurrected Savior forever. Now, when you start talking about stuff like that, people's faces visibly change. You really believe that? That Jesus was dead and really came back to life and that you're going to die and come back to life. And if we're faithful, we say, yes, we really believe that. And not only do we believe it, but everything else we believe in depends on that truth. Take away the resurrection and you rip out the very heart of Christianity and our entire faith bleeds out and dies right there on the scene. Never to rise again. As Christians, our faith cannot live if the resurrection is not true. Now, I'm not just talking about Jesus' resurrection. I'm talking about our resurrection. If we will not be raised, then Christianity falls apart. And we'll see why here in just a moment. That's exactly what Paul's getting at in, these te- in this text. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34, the resurrection, both Jesus's and yours, is a non-negotiable tenet of our faith. It's a must-have. 
Everything we are, everything we know about God, and even our daily lives, our suffering and our, our obedience depend on the truth that God raises from the dead. It all depends on the resurrection, every single bit of what we believe. Now, when I think about the people sitting in this room, I, I think there's probably, most likely, a lot of different reactions to the idea of the resurrection. There's some of you that have been faithful Easter Christians. You, you have heard the resurrection. Not only that, you watched Charlton Heston on Easter Sunday. You have grown up in the resurrection. You're in the Bible Belt. You hope it's true. You believe it's true. You certainly have no beef with it. You're not going to disagree that it's true. But on Tuesday, it's not really the first thing on your mind. You don't mind coming to church and talking about it, but it's not your main thing. My friends, if that's you, and you're someone who believes in the resurrection, but it just doesn't really come into your mind throughout the weekday, my hope is, is that after this, you will see why the resurrection needs to be your main thing. Why it needs to be the thing that you think about first when you get up out of bed. Why you go to, when you go to bed, it needs to be the last thought on your mind. It needs to be your main thing. Also in the room, there are probably people here who are struggling to hope. Some of you have recently been to a funeral of a loved one. Some of you have recently miscarried. Some of you have recently been told by a doctor that they found some weird mass and they need to cut into you and find out what it is. Some of you are now in stages. You're in stage three or stage four, and you're wondering what's going to happen next. And while the rest of us are thinking about death and resurrection, you're thinking primarily about death. It's, it's bitter. It's hard. It's broken. We're talking about death and resurrection, and your mind drifts to the empty cradle. Your mind drifts to the graveyard. Your mind drifts to the cancer appointment, the chemotherapy. And while you hope that the resurrection is true, it's, it's so hard in moments like that to lean fully on the promise. And my hope is, is that today, with this text, you won't just lean on the promise of resurrection, that you'll throw yourself on it. That you'll just throw yourself on it and know that it's firm enough to catch you and to hold you up in moments like this. It's the resurrection that gives you hope in chemotherapy. It's the resurrection that gives you hope when you bury the miscarried child. The resurrection breathes hope in those moments. It's not just something to lean on. It's something to throw yourself upon. And then maybe there are a few in the room who have not yet been convinced that this whole gospel thing is real. Mom or dad brought you here. Maybe a friend brought you here. Or maybe you're just here because you're searching things out. You're still trying to figure out this whole uh, Christianity thing. You like our songs. We, it's pretty cool to have Jimmy Needham on stage singing. Um, you like the hospitality. Coffee tastes really great. But, you know, this whole thing about Jesus and raising from the dead and then all these people who think that they're going to die and then raise that's just a little bit weird, right? My hope for you is that you will see by the end of this time that the resurrection is the most logical thing on planet Earth. It's the most logical reality that we have. One of the reasons I love Paul so much is that he is very logical. Now, he's not like the Greek philosophers who basically worship uh, uh, logic and reason, but he's certainly not above using logic and reason to show why the gospel is true. For him, the gospel is more than logical, but it's not less than logical. It is certainly a logical faith that we have. You put the gospel up against any philosophy in the world, and it's the gospel that makes the most sense. 
He is unapologetic about that truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, he takes this doctrine of the resurrection, this question of, does God raise the dead? And he puts it up against the worldly philosophy that there is no resurrection. And he says, let's see which one makes most sense. Let's see which one actually is the best philosophy. And let's go with that one. So here he is in 1 Corinthians 15. He stops for a moment and he puts on someone else's theological shoes. And he walks in them for a distance just to show them where their theology leads. Knowing that some of them do not believe in the resurrection, he poses the question, and he's not afraid to do so, what if the resurrection is not true? Have you ever thought about that? You know, oftentimes we think about why we believe in something, but we don't always think about what it would be like if it wasn't true. And for me, it's in thinking about what it would be like if it wasn't true, that kind of affirms that my hope is real, that my faith is real. So let's just stop for a moment and let's play pretend together. What if the resurrection is not true? What if every Easter, Jimmy and Robbie have been lying to you? What if you've been watching Charlton Heston movies to no point for years on end? Right? What if the resurrection is not true? What if Easter's all a lie and it's an, an, an empty truth? What if your hope in being raised from the dead is just pointless? Well, let's, let's go down that road and see where it leads. Paul walks us down that philo- philo- philosophy and he shows us that that's not something we want to be true. Look at verses uh, 13 through 19. In verse 13, here's what he says. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So point number one, if God doesn't raise the dead, then Jesus has not been raised. He's just a crucified Jewish man who's still dead, buried in some obscure tomb in Israel. And if Jesus is still dead, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Literally, the kerygma, the gospel itself, is fake news. It's not true. We've been selling a lie to people. If God doesn't raise the dead, Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, then our preaching, our kerygma, is false and your faith is pointless. Not only is our preaching false... But as he says in verse 15, we have outright misrepresented God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So, so you're tracking the logic here, right? No resurrection, no God who raises the dead, no resurrected Jesus. No resurrected Jesus, your gospel is fake. Your gospel is fake, your faith is pointless, and we have lied about God. Everything is futile, and there's nothing but an abysmal end in the end, because you are still in your sins. Man. He just takes it straight to the heart in verse 18. If it's not true that you're going to be raised from the dead, you're still in your sin. You're still destined for nothing more than than hell condemnation. Even worse, if you're still in your sin, then guess what? Death was never beaten. Right? This is like the, the uh, it's a wonderful life version from hell, right? So like, this is like, let's go back in time. Let's take out the resurrection. And you see, this is terrible. Not only if the resurrection is not true, we're still in our sin, but death is just death. 
Verse 18, he says that if it's true that there is no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. They're gone. Nothing left. They've been destroyed. I just want you to imagine that reality. That there is no resurrection. Death has not been defeated. And all there is for you is the graveyard. Imagine a reality in which death just bites and it devours. If that's true, then everything Paul's about to say in the rest of chapter 15 is false. And in fact, we have to say the exact opposite. Death swallows up everything in victory. Oh, death, you have your victory. Oh, death, we feel your sting. We'd have to say that instead of, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? We'd have to say the exact opposite because death would be victorious. Sounds cheery, doesn't it? And if death is just death, and there is no God who raises the dead, then we are of all people to be most pitied. That's what he says in verse 19. If there's no resurrection, if you're not going to be raised from the dead, then that means your whole faith has imploded. You all are to be most pitied. Why? Because you're delusional. Because you're hoping for good news when there's only bad news. You're hoping for life when there's only death. You're hoping for resurrection when all there is is destruction. You see, if it's true that there is no resurrection, there is no resurrected Savior, no resurrecting God, no forgiveness of sin that comes from the resurrection. And if resurrection never happens, then death wins. In other words, you have nothing left but the grave. That's it. Now, for some reason, people can become content with that idea. Some people have resigned themselves to the belief that there simply could not be anything better than this life, and then it's simply death. Resurrection is just optimistic. Now, my problem with that is when I talk to people who struggle to believe in the resurrection, it's not that they don't want it to be true. Right? Even my, my staunchest non-believing friends, they tend to say, man, that would be great. To have life after death and not have to fear death anymore, that would be awesome. Their struggle is not with wanting it to be true. Their struggle is believing that there is a God who is good enough for it to be true. That's the struggle. They have a, they have a problem with thinking that there truly is a God who exists, who is so good that he gives unworthy rebels who deserve death life after death. My friends, the truth that God is good is the reason we believe in a good resurrected Savior, in a good Father who raised His crucified Son so that we could be free from condemnation and so that we could have a good promise that we ourselves will one day be resurrected. We bet on the truth of the resurrection because we bank on the goodness of God. That's why we believe in the resurrection. Why do we believe it? Because God is good. Because he is gracious. He is so good that he would raise his son up from the dead. And in raising his son up from the dead would free all of us from condemnation and sin. And then promise us that he's going to give us fresh life after death. We bet on the resurrection because we bank on the goodness of God. A resurrectionless reality is an alternate reality in which there is no good God. And that is unthinkable. It's absurd. Because God himself said he is good. So, 
Paul takes us down the road and he says, okay, well, what if the resurrection is not true and we see where it leads and it is an alternative reality that is straight from hell. It's terrible. It's awful. But then he takes us in the other direction. He goes, okay, we've seen where it would go if the resurrection is not true. We'd see where it would lead. But now let's ask the question, what if it's true? What if the resurrection is real? What if Christ really has been raised from the dead? And what if you are really going to be raised from the dead after you die? So let's track that idea to its logical end. Paul argues that because Christ has been raised, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see that in verse 20. In verse 20 he says, but in fact, so it's not a question, it's not a hypothetical, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I'm assuming not many of you are farmers. At best, you're probably some millennial version of suburban garden dweller, right? <laughs> Uh, which means that you may not know what first fruits are, but first fruits are those first crops of fruits that are coming in that anticipate a coming harvest, right? It's those first ripe tomatoes, right, that are finally good enough to put on the sandwich. <laughs> you know, it's that first ripe tomato that anticipates there's more tomatoes to come. That's what a first fruits is. And so in calling Jesus the first fruits, he's saying, hey, Jesus was just the initiation, Jesus was the beginning. He has opened up a pathway that there is now going to be a harvest. He's the first fruits that has made a way for us to be resurrected. As the risen Lord, he has undone what Adam has done. Verses 21 and 22. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death... By a man, that's Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus has reversed it all. He's the first fruits opening up a harvest of resurrection. That's you and I. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. If you don't read C.S. Lewis, you should. Um, in fact, I'll come hunt you down and tell you why you should if you don't. C.S. Lewis explains that Jesus' death is the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten King Death. And everything is different because he has done so. When C.S. Lewis says everything, he means everything. Everything is different. Even the nature of death has changed. If you're paying attention to the text, you find it's interesting that Paul doesn't describe dead believers as dead. He never uses that word. He doesn't, he doesn't call believers dead. They're only those who have fallen asleep. Now, this isn't Paul's quirky way of thinking about death. He's definitely not giving some kind of weird doctrine like soul sleep where, hey, when you die, your, your soul's just kind of sleeping in the grave. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's a, it's a metaphor in the sense of when you die, it's as if your body's asleep. It's just metaphorical. Your spirit is with the Lord. Your body's not destroyed. It will one day wake up. That's the point of the metaphor is that it cannot be held by death. Now, in the mornings, uh, when it's time to wake my kids up from school, I don't panic when I walk into their rooms and I see them all laying real still. They're not moving. Um, there's not a sound except for my youngest because he snores. Um, but they're just kind of sitting still. And I don't panic and go, oh, my gosh, they're not moving. No, I walk over to the bed. I put my hand on their shoulder and I say, hey, sweetheart, 
It's time to get up. And unless you have teenagers, they tend to get up after that point. That's essentially what death has become. It's become that powerless. It can no longer hold people down. It's as harmless as sleep. Think about the time that Jesus raised the synagogue ruler's daughter. She was dead, real dead. Not like the princess bride thing, like almost dead or nearly dead, right? She was dead, dead. No pulse, no air in the lungs, no brain activity, dead, dead. Dead, dead, dead. Dead as a doornail, dead. Deader than a doornail, right? She's gone. He walks into the room, busts on the door, and he says, Hey, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, at this point, Jesus is either lying, right? Giving false comfort. Or he's saying something about death in his presence. I don't think he's lying. She's dead. Everybody knows she's dead. What he's saying is, hey, I'm on the scene, and now this dead girl might as well be asleep. Because that's how easy it's going to be for me to raise her back up. To you, she's dead. To me, she's asleep. And then he grabs her by the hands and he says, little girl, get up. He might as well have told her it's time to get ready for school. And up she comes. She's not dead. She's asleep. And, and according to Paul, that's what it's like for every believer. That's what it's like. When you die, it's not just that you're dead. You've fallen asleep and the Lord can wake you up. Again, we're not doing this weird soul sleep thing. You're going to be present with the Lord in your spirit to, to die, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But the Lord's not done with your body yet. The Lord's going to wake it right back up and you're going to live again physically in his world. It's an amazing truth. Death is different now. It's not the same death that it was it was once a lion, and now it's a kitten. It was once a shark, and now it's a minnow. It's lost all of its teeth. It's still scary. It's still uncomfortable. It's still awkward. None of us really want to die. But you should know that death is different now than what it once was. It's not the same death it was. So just track the logic. Because Christ has been raised, we know that believers have not been destroyed by death, but they have merely fallen asleep. Their bodies will wake up again when Christ renews and restores their spirit back to their body. And one day they will walk out of their graves just like he did. We Christians really believe that. You put us in the ground, we pop right back up. We're like a bad weed. You can't keep us in there. Why? Because you couldn't keep Christ in there. It's a beautiful thought, but I imagine there's some in here wondering like, okay, well, what are we waiting for? When Jesus walked out of the tomb, why didn't he just do the Thanos snap and then death like dissipate into dust, right? Why, does, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to sit here in this now and not yet moment where death's been defeated but not been completely destroyed? Well, Paul answers the question. He says that Paul, he, he, Paul says that first Christ, the first fruits, had to rise, and then at the right time, his people will rise, and then the end will come. So, in this now and not yet moment, we're just waiting. Christ has already begun the resurrection age. We're in the middle of the resurrection age, waiting for it to come to its final fruition. But in this meantime, it's not wasted space. It's not as if he's not doing something. In fact, if you look at verses 24 and 25, here's what you see. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does he mean by that? Here's what it means, very simply. Guess what? Right now, at this moment, as you're sitting in these seats, Jesus is sitting on the throne. And he's not just sitting on the throne waiting for a certain time. Jesus is sitting on the throne, subduing all things under his dominion, humiliating enemies, bringing them under his feet. He is a conquering king at this moment. Now, this service started at 9, right? So by the end of, well, was it 9? Was it 9.30? Probably explains why I'm so early every Sunday. (laughs) By the end of this service, Jesus' reign has grown. He is king over heaven and earth, and every enemy is being submitted under his feet. And then finally, one by one, after every enemy falls, the last one's up. Death up to the plate. And Jesus strikes him out once and for all. That's what we're waiting for. So it's not wasted space. We have a king who's on the throne, reigning right at this moment, subduing all of his enemies under his feet. And when the end has come, it will finally be time to knock down that Goliath death. And he will never, ever, ever rise again. Death will be defeated forever. When it comes to the resurrection, the stakes are high. Make no mistake about it. It's, it's directly tied to the kingship of Jesus. In the Bible, whoever defeats death is king indeed. Right? And so we have all this history of all these kings. Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander, Caesar Augustus, Napoleon. You, you get them all, right? And what they all have in common, they all die and they stay dead. But there is one king who died once, rose again, and conquered death instead of being conquered by death. And because of that, he is king indeed. That's Paul's logic here. It's because Jesus has defeated death, and because death itself must submit under his feet, Jesus is king over all things. Not just a king, a king of everything is what he is. He's the king. And that's what we look forward to. In this great resurrection. But Paul's logic doesn't end there. If Jesus has been raised. We will be raised. And Jesus reigns as the king. Who has conquered death. And will soon destroy death. And if Jesus reigns over all things. And death itself is to be subjected. Under his feet. Then one day the father himself. Will be seen to reign over all things. Look at verse 27. And verse 28. For God has put all things. In subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let me just break that down for you. Christ reigns over all things. All things are put under the feet of Jesus. Jesus then brings his kingdom and puts it underneath God so that God may be all in all. Do you know what that means? That means that the resurrection, your resurrection, is directly tied to the throne of God. Directly tied to it. Because he's already shown us the logic. If Christ didn't raise, Christ isn't king. If Christ isn't king, Christ can't submit all things under his feet. If he doesn't submit all things under his feet, then God's not king. That's his logic here. But because God is king, your resurrection is sure. Can you just, it would be easier 
for God to get off of his throne, to show up in the middle of this room and say, hey guys, you guys all got it wrong. I'm not the real king. It would be easier for that to happen. That's absurd, right? Than for you not to pop out of your grave. So what's more absurd? God not being king? God not being good? Or you popping up out of your grave? Paul's argument is it's less absurd to think about you popping up out of your grave than to think that God can't be king. We bet on the resurrection because we bank on the goodness of God. We bet on the resurrection because we bank on the Godhood of God. We bank on the power of God. That's why we bet on the resurrection. So in the end, guess what his simple message is? Hey, you're going to be raised. Stop doubting it. It's as sure as day. I mean, the logic is consistent. It's clear. It's the most logical thing in the world to know that you will pop up out of your grave. Your, your loved ones who are in Christ will come up and live with you. The, the resurrection is real. You don't have to fear death anymore. Don't let anyone misguide you. Bad company spoils good morals. They're going to ruin you if you allow them to convince you there's no resurrection. So that's the point. What then? What do we do with it? Okay, great. So we have a future resurrection that's coming. And on Sunday, that's great to get to sing about the resurrected Lord, to get to sing about the resurrected King. But what about Monday? Monday, it's back to the commute, back to the computer, to the nursery, to the chemotherapy treatments. Or for some, it's just a new day that you have somebody in the graveyard that you just lost. For some of you, it's back to the funeral planning. My friends, the resurrection shows up in moments like that, if you let it. The resurrection is meant to breathe hope in the nursery, hope in the commute, hope in the chemotherapy treatments. It's not meant just to be a future reality. It's a future reality that busts into your present life. So here's three ways that the resurrection can help you. Number one, the resurrection can keep you sober-minded in the here and now. You see, sometimes we get in this mundane life, or even if we are living a successful life, the success can go to our head and we can become intoxicated that this is all there is. Whether good or bad, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you're like, this is just my life, or whether you are a, a successful CEO who's the wealthiest man in Dallas, and you're like, this is my life. Whichever way, the resurrection sobers you to remember this is not all there is. This is not all there is. The Romans used to have a saying called memento mori, remember death. And it said that it was used for successful Roman generals who were coming back from the battlefield. And as they're coming back from the battlefield, they're being paraded through the streets. People are celebrating them. People are throwing confetti. I mean, these generals are now wealthy. Their whole life is paid for now. I mean, they've just, they've succeeded. They made it. And behind them, they'd have a servant whisper into their ears, hey, memento more. And the intention was to keep this general sober, in a sense. Like, hey, all this glory, all this uh, uh, fanfare, it's all fleeting. You're going to die. Remember that. Well, my friends, as Christians, we have something way, 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 way better than memento more. We have memento resurrectio. What keeps us sober-minded? Not just remembering death, but remembering that we're, being, we're going to be resurrected. I mean, it would be relatively depressing. If memento mori is all that we had, then as Paul says in verse 32, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. 
Memento more, right? But we don't have that. We have the resurrection, which means that we can wake up from our drunken stupor. Good, bad, indifferent, this life is a season and it will end. But that's not all there is for a believer. The season will give way to a new age. To a glorious age where there's nothing but life. It's a better life that's being opened up to us. The season of mopping up spilled juice, of sitting in traffic, hoping for promotions, waiting for the next chemotherapy session, planning funerals, that's all going to come to an end. And Christ will raise on that great glorious day all who are his to eat and drink and walk in his presence forever. Second, the resurrection can also motivate your obedience. Paul makes some obscure reference to baptism of the dead. My friends, we could, we could look in on that. I could give you 15 possibilities of what theologians think that it means. Quite frankly, here's, here's the profound meaning behind what Paul is talking about in the baptism of the dead. We have no flipping idea. Okay? We don't know. Um, but one of the points that he is making in this is that what you believe in the resurrection, about the resurrection, is inevitably going to be revealed in what you do. What you do and what you believe about the resurrection matter. These people are doing something. Baptism of the dead, whatever it is, these people are doing something because of the truth of the resurrection. So he's giving us a category that the resurrection is not just a theological idea. It's a reality meant to help you govern your actions. If it's not clear in, in, at the beginning of, of that section where he's talking about baptism of the dead, he's not that clear in that section. He is absolutely explicit in verse 34. If the resurrection is true, here's the application. Stop sinning. Do not go on sinning. If you think about it, what has the most powerful motivation to cause you to worship God and to delay self-gratification? Why can you say no to the pride, to the porn, to the division, to the gossip, to the arrogance? Why are you able to walk away from all those things? Guess what? Because you can delay pleasure now because there's greater pleasure to come. You can say no to the mud holes now because beach vacation is coming. Right? You can say no to all these lesser sins that bring you pleasure now because Jesus is going to make you alive and there will be pleasures that you can't even dream of then. So let the resurrection motivate your obedience. I can say no to a Hershey chocolate candy bar when I know that my wife has made me a German Dutch chocolate cake at home. My friends, you have something far better coming than all these piddly little sins. Finally, let the resurrection breathe hope into your suffering. If you're here and you're struggling and you're suffering and you're in hardship and affliction, Paul sympathizes with you. He and all of his people are in danger at every hour, he says. He says they die every day. And yet he knows that his suffering is not pointless. In fact, his suffering has a purpose. My friends, even if you go to a thousand funerals, even if you were to die a thousand deaths, as you suffer, losing loved ones, enduring all kinds of hardship, you can know and trust that resurrection follows death. As the now deceased Tim Keller once said, we can have hope because if the resurrection is true, then everything is going to be all right. My friends, 
On Monday, you have your chemotherapy appointments. You have your traffic. You have your nursery moments. You have the spilled apple juice. Because the resurrection is true, even if some of us that are sitting in this room today will not be sitting here next week, even if some of us die in a nasty car accident, even if some of us die of cancer, even if some of us mourn a loved one, because the resurrection is true, it will be all right. Jesus lives, and so will we. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this resurrection truth will motivate us to endure suffering, to endure hardship, and to obey you. Father, let it bring us sobriety in this age. Father, thank you for being such a good God who gives us resurrection hope. We pray this in your son's name.